This is Science Plus Story. I'm Bob Lalish. Your research organization puts out content. Lots and lots of content. But how do you really know if it's making a difference in the world, much less for your organization? My guest, Stefan Bird Kruger, thinks about that question for a living. As chief analytics officer for the firm Parsons TKO, he works with a lot of big-name think tanks and NGOs. And he thinks the sector is finally ready to level up the ways it measures content impact. In the nonprofit sector, we often say, well, you know, we're not a for-profit company. We're not sales force. There's been this belief that the ability to do these things is inaccessible. That stopped being true a few years ago. And I think the capabilities are there and people are becoming more aware that, hey, this should be feasible. This should be possible. Coming up, I talk with Stefan about which content metrics he looks at closely, why research organizations need to promote their individual experts more, and why a new project at Parsons TKO aims to bring data innovation to the research world at large. Stefan Bird Kruger, welcome to Science Plus Story. Great to chat with you. Thank you, Bob. Let's start with a premise that research institutions neglect the metrics of content impact. True, false from your perspective, a nuanced answer? I appreciate the third option. And I want to be careful about how I talk about this because research organizations put a lot of effort into, and a lot of attention, I should say, into thinking about their content, about thinking about their impact on the world. But the tool set that they use, the language that they use to talk about the impact of content have kind of slowed down. They've kind of gotten locked in the past of what was possible. So I think they put attention in the right place, but we haven't seen a lot of innovation and evolution in the way we think about impact with content for a long time. We had a chat earlier this year, and I'm going to quote you from that chat. You said, research institutions generate content because that's what research institutions do. It's the way they've always been. There's a lot of momentum behind that. There's often less scrutiny however, around the result of that. There isn't a lot of depth of understanding into how content is consumed, end of quote. So why is there this lack of scrutiny and depth about how content that's generated by research organizations is consumed? Is it a lack of resources? Is it a disconnect between impact and funding models? Is it a fear of accountability? All three of those things or something else? I would certainly say all three. All of those play a factor in there. That accountability one comes up a lot when anytime I talk about metric selection and and KPIs. There's a lot of what we call vanity metrics in the sector, things like how many page views did the site get overall. A lot of those metrics are easy to default to. They're the ones that show up on the first page of your analytics dashboard. They're the ones that show up in industry benchmarks, but they don't tell a lot of story and they don't actually tie to the work that we do very concretely. The more specific the metric gets, the harder it can be to move. You really have to 
understand if your piece of content is reading the, reaching the right person and if you're paying attention to who's actually engaging and what they're doing with the content you can't just send it out to a different audience to goose your numbers a little bit so i think that fear of accountability that if we put too close a magnifying glass on our work it can be harder to demonstrate success and i think that gets to the lack of resources as well people fear being held accountable to more nuanced metrics because it's hard. It's hard to actually make sure you're tracking that correctly. One of the challenges that we have as organizations is when we think about impact, it's happening in a lot of different places. So you're going to have some of your data on your website. You're going to have some of the data in your email. Some of it's going to be in social media. Some of it's going to be in offline conversations. And so being able to pull together all those stories to make sure that you have a 360 degree view of your content and what's happening with it. It does, it, it comes back to that resources question. And I think as far as the impact and funding models, there's definitely something there. The relationships with funders are gradually evolving, but traditionally when you think about a grant going to a research institution, the purpose of the grant, what's on the grant is generating scholarship. If that's the goal to generate, that's going to be the focus. So if we can shift some of that attention from funders to not just generating the content, but what happens with it, whether it's new or old content, you can change somebody's mind. And so being able to think through the purpose of this content and measuring that more closely, I think that's the holy grail for, for research institutions. So let's talk about some of these metrics that can better indicate whether someone's mind has been changed. Scrolling and other signs of engaged consumption. So one of the things that you said that you encounter more and more in your projects is scroll depth. Let's define that first. What is scroll depth? And then let's have you talk about what it can tell us about whether a reader has been influenced by the content they've just read or they've just gotten. When we talk about content consumption and measuring content consumption, it's worth it to get out of the world of data and really just think about real world experiences. If you imagine you send your content to someone and you sit down with them in their living room, what does it actually look like for somebody to consume content? They're going to pull out their iPad, they're going to open their inbox, they'll follow the link and click into your content, and they're going to sit there and they're going to move through it. Possibly they'll nod their head, and probably at the end of it, you're going to want to have a conversation with them. All right, so what did you think? Were you convinced? And so all of those steps in that, everything you can imagine a person doing in a room, how can we get data on that? So scroll depth in particular, that is the heart. That's how they spend most of that time in this little thought experiment, was moving through your content. And so as they go through the content, what does that look like digitally? Can we capture, you know, as they get to 10%, 20%, 30%? It's a really traditional way of capturing scroll data. There are other ways of looking at this, though. Could we track when somebody scrolls to the second headline in your document? And what was the text of that headline? Imagine if we could track, are they scrolling to the call to action to register for a related event? We could even get down to the granularity of ideas. Can we track if somebody scrolled to the thesis? Did somebody scroll to a supporting point about the legislative aspect of a field of research? 
So there's a lot of information that we could be getting. We're starting to see more scroll data. We used to be the, the ones we would always come in and set it up for the first time. We're starting to find organizations that have already set up scroll tracking. Even with what exists out there, it's all still pretty early days in terms of the resolution, but then also the context of that scroll data. So context is important, but are there benchmarks about scrolling that we can start to talk about that demonstrate this reader was really engaged, this reader lingered, spent a lot of time, or is there a combination of scroll depth and time spent that shows we weren't there, but we have a strong footprint, if you will, that this person really had an immersive experience with the piece of content that we put in front of them. I'm glad you mentioned benchmarks. That's actually an active area of research for us, looking at some of these nuanced content impact metrics in finding sector benchmarks that we could use for organizations to understand how they're doing. But absent that, your best benchmark is your own past performance. Your best benchmark is how the rest of your content is, is performing. So even before you get to know how you're doing against another organization, what is your own best work? And that information is very readily at hand. And so being able to benchmark across other parts of your website against similar types of content, benchmarking the scroll performance of your email outreach versus your social media outreach, it really helps you understand how these audiences and these experiences differ. And I think, you know, a lot of us as content creators in these organizations in particular, they understand what is in these documents. If they're looking at anything shortly after they published, they could probably just rattle off, you know, well, roughly halfway through the document, that's where we get to the good stuff, or that's where we ask people to give us their email address. And so I think that internal context makes this data much more interpretable, and that's super valuable. So we're moving away from vanity metrics or we're trying to, we're taking on things like scroll depth. What else are we thinking about? Where else should we be thinking about in our research organization to adopt a more progressive, if you will, a more sophisticated set of metrics to measure how people are engaging with what we're putting out? A lot of it, again, it comes back to those thought experiments of what is the change we're trying to create in the world? We do this work, we conduct our research, we produce our publications, and we go through the effort of pushing it out into the world. How do we want people to behave? In a lot of cases for research institutions, it's going to be about starting conversations, getting into the right rooms, legislative conversations. So a lot of that will, will have to do with can we track our relationships with these people who we're trying to influence and see how it changes down the road? In some cases, research institutions are also targeting cultural change. Are we changing the way people talk about this issue in the media or beyond the media, just in, in culture, in online conversations? And so I think there's a, a lot of good think about social listening as a place where we focus. Can we look at a community that we're trying to influence and are we seeing them pick up the language that we use, make the points that we're making in our, in our scholarship? So I think some of those downstream people-focused, audience-focused, and culture change-focused metrics will add a lot of value and tell a lot of the story of the impact of this work. You know, when I talk to heads of 
nonprofit research organizations. And we talk about relationship tracking because so much of this is about how did the content change the relationship? Did the person come back and are they more convinced? Do they want to have conversations? Do they want to take action? The heads of these organizations say to me, but relationship tracking is just so arduous. It's just beyond my people to enter every conversation they have, every touch point into a CRM. So what's the state of play now? Is it still that arduous? Are there other means, other systems that we have at our disposal that can make that kind of relationship tracking a little bit easier? There are definitely ways around it. And that labor of tracking every relationship is a part of the storied history of our sector. There's just a handful of organizations that are known for having done it well. But even those, even those best, they are conscious of the weight that it takes to manually track all this stuff. The good news is there are lots of new ways to do this. There are systems that can handle that tracking a bit more passively. There are some business processes that you can put in place that let you, again, a little bit more passively as a part of the day-to-day -day work, capture more of this context. Even when you think about, especially in this moment, the way we interact with each other has changed. You think about how many of conversations are happening digitally, like this one we're having right now. It's happening in a digital system. And so all these interactions are leaving more digital footprints. So organizations can look at things like Zoom. If your organization uses Zoom, Zoom knows every conversation that anyone in your organization has had for the past year, year and a half almost. And so there are lots of ways to tap into data sets to make the relationship relationship picture richer without huge amounts of effort. So we've been talking about the performance of content and measuring that performance. There's also the way that content can help an organization across all of its systems and all of its strategic functions, fundraising, advocacy, actions, and beyond. How sophisticated are the generally are the clients or the prospects that are coming to you about linking, attributing the performance of content to these other operations in the organization? Do they have a long way to go? Are they more open to it now than they were five years ago? I'm throwing a series of questions at you, but what's the state of health of thinking in the research and think tank sector about that kind of measurement? It is a rare organization that has that solved and, uh, and thinks that they're doing it well. I think your point about appetite for it, that has definitely changed. That's been a, a tangible change in the last 24 months or so. I think the recognition that that content, the messages that we put out are the heart of what we're doing, particularly for research organizations, and being able to understand how this work spreads across the aisles, the silos in the organization. So being able to attribute the ideas back. And I think this gets at your point before, we do all this work in order to build a deeper relationship. And I think everyone who works for a research organization can think of this. You write the report, but then you write the talking points for the legislator because you know they're not going to read the report. 
what is the value of the report then versus what is the value of the ideas that go into creating the report and can be summarized? Is the report just a table thumper that gives you authority? But then how do you measure that authority as it stands behind those talking points? So really understanding the conceptual model of your content. How does the content and the organization relate to one another? Again, within the things that any one department might generate, program versus comms versus development versus GR, the same ideas are flowing through all of them. And so figuring out those relationships is a real trick, but once you've done it, you can track the impact across all those aisles much more competently. Why do you think appetite has grown over the last two years for thinking this way and measuring that way, the performance and the attribution of content across these systems, how content can can aid fundraising, advocacy, et cetera. There's a lot of factors there. I think that it's the move to digital, of course, everything became so digital and a lot of those interactions started happening through these digital platforms. And so getting the sense that, hey, this is where it's at right now. It's definitely something of the moment. I do think that there is a growing amount of, let's call it competition in the thought leadership space. Being able to demonstrate outcomes, demonstrate impact is important for funders. It's important to help us figure out our position in the sector against other people who might influence in the same area. I also think though, in the nonprofit sector, we often say, well, you know, we're not a for-profit company. We're not Salesforce. There's been this belief that the ability to do these things is inaccessible. That stopped being true a few years ago. And I think the capabilities are there and people are becoming more aware that, hey, this should be feasible. This should be possible. And so I think that sort of awareness that, that more things are possible than they used to be is a big part of that. I wanted to ask you about one other set of potential metrics that we often think about but don't apply in this sector, and that's metrics from the publishing realm. So things like conversion rate, conversion funnels, subscriber acquisition cost, retention and churn. These are things that if you read Digiday, this is the stuff that they're always talking about, right? And it's an accepted, it's a, it's a really useful set of metrics, but it has never seemed to research organizations to quite apply to them because, well, we don't think about our audience as subscribers. What do you think about those paradigms, that publication metric paradigm? Does it fit the research organization space at all? How could it be altered to better fit the space and give us some insights as to whether our content is performing well or poorly. I do think it applies. I think research organizations are starting to realize that. I think more and more we see research organizations speaking in exactly those terms, considering subscription, membership models. Again, it's the sort of a myth of, of uniqueness. 
research organizations tend to have, especially larger ones, lots of different programs. Each of those programs are going to have their own specific issues, and each bit of scholarship is going to have a slightly different point, and so the audience might shift. You have all of this sort of dynamic movement in the organization, which has kind of justified that, well, let's just start from scratch each time and redefine the audience each time. But across, especially in these larger organizations, across all the work, you are talking to the same people. We understand the value of those relationships downstream of publication and our theory of change, but sort of upstream in their history with the organization, you are talking to the same people across different programs and across different pieces of research. So the applicability is definitely there. And a lot of those publishing metrics are geared for long-term relationships because that's the funding model. It's important to speak of it that way in publishing. It's not the heart of funding in scholarship, and that's why it's not the first place that we look. But experience-wise, there's a lot to be learned. Let's talk about brand and the metrics of brand. It might seem obvious, but why is social media the focus for measuring and managing brand? Why is social this linchpin for understanding how strong or how weak your brand is as a research organization? Social media is a wonderful resource for understanding ourselves and people's perception of us and our organizations because there's so much public out there. It's a place where people go to express themselves. It's a place where people go to give some of their frankest and sometimes too frank thoughts about the world and the people and the organizations they interact with. It's this fire hose of free information about how people view us and our works. And I do think that is, when people think about their brand, I often encourage, it's not just what you wrote on the door, your brand is also what you're known for. When people speak of you, do they speak of your good works? Understanding how people talk about our issue areas, when people talk about the methods that we use, are we really being seen in the way we work, being seen positively or not? And are we shifting that? I think that's a really important value in social media. So when a client comes to you and says, we want to know what our reputation is, what our brand is, and you're looking at social Obviously, it depends on what their priorities are, but what are some of the things you would look at to pull out what sentiment is saying about them, what their reputation is, what their brand is? There's a lot of layers to that conversation. Some of it is the, the direct mentions. So what are the direct conversations that we're engaging in? And again, I would, I would go beyond the brand itself and how are people talking about the work that we do as an organization. But I also think it's worth looking through a layer and looking at the people who talk to you, who follow you, and getting a sense of their own relationships and how can we use that context of who is engaging with us as a layer to another way to interpret the way they talk about us. It's social listening and you know that field of techniques of finding the, the relevant keywords and seeing what your footprint in those conversations looks like. Do people have awareness when they speak about an issue that you cover? Do they speak about you? Do they know that you're there? So the awareness and then people's willingness to engage with your brand and your organization when they're talking about this issue, that's another good indicator. Your team at Parsons TKO pulled in Twitter data from the top 100 think tanks in the University of Pennsylvania think tank ratings. And we both went to Penn, so shout out to Penn. 
but Penn puts out uh, an annual rating of think tanks. So you, you pulled in data, Twitter data from those think tanks that have Twitter accounts to so look at their behavior on Twitter. What did your team discover? That was a fun little project, a way for us to celebrate our community and those clients of ours who, uh, who ranked highly. Congratulations to you all. It's interesting, you know, that community, they're all aware of one another. You know, this is a cohort of peers. It was interesting just to look at them from a, a behaviors and practices perspective. How much do they emulate one another? Do they post with a similar cadence? What technology do they use? Are they using the same tools to actually manage their outreach? One of the things that I looked for and was interested to find was the relationships between these organizations. So you have a lot of these institutes and centers, and they each have their programmatic areas. In a lot of cases, there's overlap. When they interact on Twitter, are they interacting with each other? Or if not, who are they interacting with? And you can look at those mentions. You know, how often does an institutional account mention another account? And for the most part, it's their own experts, which is a, another whole universe of brand that's worth discussing. But figuring out how, how much engagement is there, with whom is that engagement, and how much shyness is there to engage. There's an admitted amount of competition in the space, but there's just as much opportunity for collaboration. These organizations can be boosting one another. You can have coalitions of organizations that are working together to advocate their good works. I think there's a lot of room for growth there in terms of how organizations view and interact with their peers in this public forum. Are there any specifics that you might care to offer right now in terms of best practices? I do think that finding the right cadence for your audience and being able to pull in as many voices to drive that engagement as possible. Social media, the first word there is social. And so how can we make your social platform a place where people engage with one another? Your first and most obvious audience for that is your own staff. And there isn't across the board adoption of that. There are a lot of organizations that are really shy about putting their experts forward. But experts are a huge part of your work, your audience, and your brand. In a lot of cases, it varies a lot. But even if you just think about raw followship, the community of experts at an organization probably have an equivalent, if not greater, footprint to the brand itself and extremes on both sides. So figuring out how can you start the conversation and then have people there to help keep it going and create an active community where the rest of the world, the rest of the audience that you're trying to reach but haven't captured yet can notice and have a reason to engage themselves and, and keep paying attention rather than thinking of social as a bulletin board. So what kind of metrics, if we accept the premise, and I certainly do that, it's the experts in these organizations that carry much of the branding weight for the organization, that the organizational account is important, but just a small part of the pie. What kind of metrics do organizations or should organizations be looking at to tease out the value of their individual experts for the organizational brand? So you mentioned that Individuals often have collectively, or maybe even individually, as many followers as the organization does. That's one crude way of looking at it. But how do we measure the value of an individual expert's 
followers and social weight, if you will, for the brand of the organization. Because this is a tension between, this is often a tension within these organizations between the organization and the individual expert. Yeah. And that tension is, yeah, it's real. And I think one to be a conversation to embrace at any one individual organization. I think in terms of metrics, there's the base one of activity. Do we see our experts already by their own nature participating in these places? Are they contributing to conversations? Are they making themselves visible? Can they, through their personal brand, boost the brand of the organization and bring attention to the organization? I think that's a big one. And I think beyond that, looking at engagement, again, the types of engagement, how well can we understand who is following them. Look at at the level. This is a layer deeper than most people care to look, but we can understand who's following these people. We can understand expert to expert, what doors do they open by leveraging their own personal brand in support of the institution. So there's a lot of detail that you can get when you dig into the data to really understand their footprint. There's another piece of this that we haven't really talked about yet, but social media is a very public, very active space where actively contributing information and the footprint of the brand can be seen. But there's another one out there, which is search data. Can we look at the way people are searching for scholarship and are they doing that based on institution, based on program, or based on expert? If you have big names at your organization, those people probably have their own following. Even when it's not in the competitive space of social media, you might be able to see the signal of their their influence when people are searching for things on the topic that they cover. Do you find a prejudice against search among a lot of comps people and marketing people these days? All the attention is in social search. That was 10 years ago. Nobody searches anymore, right? Why should we bother optimizing Do you find that to be the case? And if you do, what's your argument against it? I certainly wouldn't call it prejudice. Maybe fair to call it ignorance. I understand it. It's comparatively, compared to social, it's such a silent space. You get an email and a ping on your phone when somebody mentions your organization. When you log into LinkedIn, there's a little red circle. There's a lot of activity and visibility for social media. Search is just quietly happening in the background. It is an ocean of interaction, an ocean of engagement. When these organizations look at their website traffic data, they see the social fragment and it's usually in the single digit percentage, maybe double digit percentage, if they're particularly controversial as an organization. Search data is often going to be on the order of half of traffic, anywhere from a third to two thirds is what we typically see. So it's a comparatively a huge amount of where people turn to find their information. And every one of those people are typing something into their computer in their own words about what they care about, what they're looking for. There's probably some qualitative words in there as well. So there's a lot to be learned about what people think about and and whether people think about brand as they're trying to find relevant information. So before we talk about the data studio, I'll throw you a curveball. What are the one or two emerging trends in data analytics for research organizations that 
nobody's talking about or only a couple of people are talking about that we're all going to be talking about in a couple of years? What are you seeing around the corner that you think more people should be thinking about right now? I think that very much flowing from everything we just discussed, people are going to be pressed to tell the story of their work and being able to demonstrate that impact. You can tell a story about why you do your work, being able to put numbers to that story. I think we're going to see an increasing amount of pressure to do that. Also, I'm seeing that growing as an area of focus, even down to the way people name their teams and name their roles, focusing on things like engagement, having staff dedicated not just to getting the word out, but seeing what happens afterward. So I think that's a huge part of it. I think that's a big trend. And I guess it's kind of tied to that as well, but being able to tell that story holistically across the organization. These organizational boundaries and saying, well, it's just hard to get their data. It has been true for a long time, in part because of the effort that was always required to gain and to capture and then report on that data. As that gets easier and easier, hiding behind those departmental divisions is going to get harder and harder. I think I'm seeing less patience from leadership when it comes to inability to tell these stories. I actually want to credit leadership because I would say funders are a little a little late, a little slow. And I think more of the momentum right now I'm seeing coming from organizational leadership to push for, give me the whole story, give me the, the full picture. And I think lastly is, and this is a shout out to our comms colleagues at these organizations, recognizing the role that comms has as a aggregator of insight about public audiences. These organizations are less and less just focused on getting the word out and a little bit more focused on understanding the people that they are serving, understanding the constituents of this research. You can do surveys, you can do studies, but comms is the department that's out there having interactions with these people most often. They have the largest number of discrete systems that have these touch points. I think there's a growing recognition of comms, heads of comms, you know, CMOs, and their ability to serve as a research arm for the rest of the organization. I think there's a lot of untapped potential there. That's really interesting because I think the prejudice, using the word prejudice again, is that the drive for impact, the drive for numbers is being catalyzed by funders, not by leaders, and certainly not by communications people. And you're saying just the opposite. It's the leaders of these organizations and the communications staff and CMOs who are driving the innovation that exists, not the funders. And the funders are a little bit behind the curve. Am I hearing you correctly? I think so. Don't have as much hard, I don't have numbers on that, but I think anecdotally, when I see that drive coming from funders, it's still at a fairly generic space. It's still at a, okay, well, just tell me a story. I leave the details up to you. And often I think when things are discreetly named, I mean, I'm, I'm still appalled the number of times I, th I see things like page views and the reporting that comes out of grant relationships there's still a lot of just reversion to the mean, reversion to whatever last year's benchmark study was. 
I think the push to say what's possible, you know, how can I wow and figuring out what that actually looks like, rightly or wrongly, I, I would attribute that to, to people who are being brave in their organizations. Just to be clear, when you say telling the story, you mean telling the story of the impact of the research, not just telling the story of the research, right? Yes, exactly. Telling the story of the impact. What did our money accomplish? I think answering that question is just an art form and one that can be done with greater nuance as people focus more on these metrics. So you have a new initiative at Parsons TKO called the Data Studio that you have high hopes for. I got a sneak peek at it and was very excited about it. So explain what the concept is and why you're putting it together. Yeah, yeah, the Data data Innovation Studio, because it's not just enough to, to do what we have been doing. How can we push the practice forward of using data as a strategic asset for these organizations? A bit of the background, Parsons TKO, we are a consultancy. We help organizations build new practices, build new capabilities, make better use of the capabilities they have. So we do road mapping and we do, my team does consulting on data. But all of that, again, you know, and we all like to, to point at the funders, a lot of that is downstream of budgets that are already allocated for things that we have done for a long time. There's a lot of inertia into the types of work that these organizations can ask for. And so sometimes our best work, it happens at the margins. You know, it happens in between these projects when we say, ah, you know, what if we could have done it this way instead? What if they had asked us to connect these systems? What if they had asked us to introduce this new tool that has never been used before? The point of the studio is creating a dedicated space for that type of creativity, a space where we can ask what if and come up with new roles for data at these organizations to create new capabilities, to give them new insights into content performance and the way their audiences engage with them. And we are creating it as a membership program. We want this to be something that this community can join us in so that we can make sure that we're getting the right voices, we're understanding the work, we're designing solutions to it. The work of the studio is going to center around a series of studies. So we will focus on one issue, one opportunity at a time. Our first study is on content, content impact in particular, and really understanding the life cycle of content for, for an organization. And we are looking at research organizations first and foremost, and then looking at the opportunities to use data at every step and throughout content operations to understand things like return on investment of the effort of producing that report versus the talking points and how these ideas flow through them. So that's the picture of what we're doing. I understood that we were talking about it as a content map. Is that still the terminology that you're using? Yeah, yeah, the content map, that's sort of that big picture of content operations. So how do we think about everything that happens around content from initial ideation through its creation, its publication, its promotion, its long tail. You know, when you think about the huge library of content that research organizations are, are sitting atop, how do we understand content throughout every step of that? The tasks and the roles and responsibilities of staff and then the ways in which data can inform those tasks and help the staff of these organizations do more, do better. 
What are some of the questions that you're going to be asking within this first study? You must have some hypothesis. It's really intriguing, but it sounds like a huge, huge study. The life cycle of a piece of content. Every organization I've ever worked at and with would want such a thing if they had heard of it, but they never would have come up with the concept on their own. What are some of the questions you're going to be asking within this project? A lot of them, especially early on, we're going to focus on things like what are all the forms and modes of consumption and engagement that an organization services and how can we get that big picture? I think understanding that big picture, that's everyone's challenge right now. So that's sort of just an obvious and easy starting point is to map it out and then really start to dig into the details. We can have conceptually, what is that person sitting on a chair doing when they consume our content? And then turn that into to practical solutions. How do we actually measure this? How do we actually build this with the tools that we have? What does it look like to aggregate this? So answering some of those questions, I think, you know, more broadly and thinking about the bigger picture of the content lifecycle, thinking about what does, what are the inputs to content creation look like? Where do these ideas start and how can we use, can we use data to inform, if not influence, the decisions that we make about what we create? One of the things I expect we'll find in there if we help people measure the return on investment of the money, and I think most often the time spent in creating content, we will find that organizations are spending time on things that they don't value and could make better use of their time if they reallocated some of that effort. That's uh, an expected outcome. A wild understatement, my friend. If I run or am part of a research organization, as many of the listeners of this podcast are, how do I know the data studio, the data innovation studio will benefit me? I think that if you have a large team that is spending significant amount of time creating and disseminating content, and you have even the slightest inclination that that time could be redirected and spent in better, more creative, more satisfying, more impactful ways, and or you know you're doing well and just want better tools to tell that story, this study in particular is going to be right for you. I think more broadly, if you have peers or if you're at leadership and you have lots of departments and across all those departments, you think there's more opportunity to use data in creative ways, our studio is going to touch on everything from the role of data and content and measuring brand to understanding relationships between organizations and coalitions to thinking about the role of data in HR. How can we use data to understand our teams in mission-driven organizations and how they work together? So we've got a lot of exciting and interesting studies coming up, and we're looking forward to seeing you all there. Congratulations on the idea and the initiative. Thank you, Bob. And thank you for all your support. I know you gave us a lot of ideas and inspiration as we got started as well. The studio is going to succeed because of the people who come into it. So thank you very much. Of course. And thank you for joining me today. Wonderful conversing with you and great insights. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. You can find show notes, a transcript of my chat with Stefan and more at our website, scienceplusstory.com slash podcast. 
If you liked the episode, please leave a rating and a short review on your listening platform of choice. Resonate Recordings engineers Science Plus Story. Mikhail Poro composed our theme music. I'm Bob Lalish. Thanks for listening. <laughs>